Having kids is awesome, but raising them can be difficult and filled with ups and downs. Challenges are seemingly everywhere, whether they're medical, social, financial, cultural, or otherwise. And sometimes the downs threaten to drown out the ups. In short, having kids is risky. We get it. We're parents too. But we're also pediatric emergency doctors. We have unique insight into risks and how to keep them in perspective. Welcome to Cloudy with a Risk of Children. Join us as we explore the challenges and the fun of raising healthy children. Just one more thing, doctor, she said. What can I do about Michael's picky eating? He eats nothing. I had just wrapped up explaining to this mom that her three-year-old's fever and runny nose weren't cause for huge concern, and I'd finished explaining when she should consider returning for medical care. I looked over at Michael. He had a popsicle in one hand and a bag of goldfish crackers in the other, stuffing his face happy as a clam. I glanced at his chart to check his weight, 17 kilograms, which put him at the 95th percentile for his age, about 20% heavier than the average for a guy his age. I looked back at his mom, totally deadpan, and I said to her, That's amazing. He eats nothing. And yet, he's heavier than almost everyone his age. Incredible. I'm not sure what you're doing, but somehow you've hit upon the solution for world hunger. Ha ha, she said. I don't mean he eats nothing, but he only eats crackers. You know, like those goldfish crackers, french fries, you know, things like that. And he drinks milk. He drinks lots of milk. He loves it. But he won't eat anything else. No healthy food. No matter how hard I tried to force him to eat his fruits and vegetables. Now, I'm an emergency physician, and this clearly isn't emergency medicine. But I've lost track over the years of how many times I've been confronted in the ED by this sort of question, this concern over picky eating. And I get it. As parents, we all want our children to eat healthy so they can grow up tall and strong with brains that function like they should. And so there's a huge amount of anxiety on the part of parents regarding what their kids eat and how much they eat. It's the source of a lot of worry and tension and perpetual battles over eating in family homes. Now, for parents, there's a lot of resources around this issue, but hands down, one of the best resources out there is the Ellen Satter Institute, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to fostering healthy eating habits and a healthy relationship with food, and which for many years, uh, and this is a quote from their website, uh, the link, by the way, will be in the show notes, quote, has taught parents how to transform family meals into joyful, healthful, struggle-free events, free from drama and conflict, unquote. At the Ellen Satter Institute, they sum up their position as uplifting the mealtime experience. All welcome words need us to say for parents who are struggling with this issue. And today we're incredibly fortunate to be joined by Anne Blocker, who is the executive director of the Institute. Anne is a dietitian and author who holds specialty certifications in eating disorders, sports nutrition, and diabetes. And for the past 37 years, she's been helping people live healthier and happier lives by breaking free of rigid feeding and dieting practices and helping them to develop a trusting relationship with food and their bodies. Anne has seen firsthand many times the end result of the distortions caused by poor feeding practices and restrictions. 
uh, which led her to incorporate Ellen Satter's feeding and eating models into the heart of her own counseling and dietitian work. Anne also works with a wellness program at Luther College, and she sees patients in her private practice. I'll be right back with my interview with Anne Blocker. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And, and thank you for asking me to be here today and to represent the Ellen Satter Institute. It's just truly a great honor and I feel privileged. So I have to ask you, Anne, where does this podcast find you this morning? Well, this podcast finds me in Northeast Iowa. And um, in addition to what you had on that intro, I'm the mom of three adult children. So we've had lots of practice um, this whole feeding journey, but I'm always proud to say that they're really happy, healthy eaters and they all three have a good relationship with food. So I feel like my spouse and I have done our job. Let's just bite right into this. Forgive the dad sure. joke. That's all, that's all I have. <laughs> um, so a lot of dietitians uh, talk about this uh, concept of uh, what is called intuitive eating. So what in fact does that really mean, Anne? So yeah, let's talk about that to start with. So there's um, probably two kind of feeding concepts, eating concepts out there that are pretty similar. And um, intuitive eating is really um, the phrase and the work coined by um, Evelyn Triboli and Elise Resch in 1995. And um, eating competence and the division of responsibility uh, was developed by Ellen Satter in uh, the early um, and mid 1980s. So both have been around for a long time. They have a lot of similarities um, and, and both of those models are really about self-care frameworks for eating that emphasize trusting our internal regulators of hunger and fullness. They have some kind of small differences. Um, Triboli and Resch have um, 10 principles for how people can go about developing in, um, intuitive eating. And um, Satter focuses more on um, kind of breaking her work into two parts. One is eating competence, which I always say is the outcome of feeding children. We want um, eating competence is a focus in four areas. So developing a positive, um, uh, developing a positive attitude about food, having good food acceptance skills, being able to trust our internal regulators of hunger and satiety, and then developing some contextual skills that are about self-care and really contextual skills are how can you ultimately get yourself fed? Can you put a meal together? You don't have to be a gourmet cook. Uh, can you go shopping? Can you, uh, you know, buy foods? Can you have a regular meal time? So th th that's kind of the where the principles there are a little bit different. And then Satter has always, um, she was the pioneer for what's called the division of responsibility and feeding, right. which is her approach for helping parents take leadership with feeding and allow the child to develop autonomy. So in Satter's approach, a little bit different 
than the intuitive eating approach, we put a little bit more emphasis on the structure of meals and snacks. So we're not talking about rigidity, but we're talking about the importance of that structure to help people set up um, themselves for being successful with internally regulated eating. So both have some similarities, little bits of difference. Where I feel more expert is definitely in Satter's approach. They get kind of interchanged um, sure. frequently. So let's so, just unpack that for a second. So I, I, I saw that uh, on your website and it, it's a term I've seen elsewhere. Also this so-called shared division of responsibility. My take on that is what you mean is that it's the parents' responsibility to bring the food to their children. It's their children's responsibility to decide to eat it. That's really it in a nutshell. And, and I think what it does is it helps parents really understand that they really have some very important jobs around feeding. And we, we shouldn't take those jobs lightly. And eating is a skill. We teach kids how to play sports. We teach kids how to ride bikes. We also have to help our kids learn how to eat. And so those parent jobs are really about parent leadership. And that would be deciding the what, the when, and the where of feeding. So you're in charge of going to the grocery store. You're in charge of deciding what makes it to the family table. Um, you decide when your family is going to eat and you decide where. And then the beauty of this is that for children, children develop autonomy and body sovereignty. So they, they trust their bodies and they do that by deciding how much and whether they're going to eat. And I, and I include whether because sometimes kids just have to do, they just have to come to the table and, and they get to decide whether or not they're going to eat, knowing that the parent will provide a snack a little bit later so they, they get an opportunity um, if they chose not to eat at that time. So but I think that's where, I, I, sorry to interrupt, but I, I think that's where it falls off, it comes off the rails for a lot of parents. What I see in my clinical practice is exactly this, where the parents do all of the things that you've outlined here, where they go to the grocery store, they buy the food, they provide the food, and then mealtime comes, and that's the part that where, where the difficulty arises, the child deciding whether to eat, and the child decides not to eat what is on offer, which creates a lot of anxiety on the part of parents who feel appropriately that nutrition is very important. And mm -hmm. so they hover, and they coax, and they plead, and many of them turn into short order cooks, and they go to their pantry or to their kitchen and they find alternatives. And there's a lot of energy on the part of parents trying to convince their children that they should eat, that they must eat and please eat something. So that's the part where it yep. falls off the rails all the time. And I, I think really, you know, behind that is every parent just wants to be a really good parent. And so this is kind of driven by, by maybe fear. Um, sometimes as parents, we think, well, if my kid doesn't eat their broccoli, that means I'm a bad parent. And, and really what the division of responsibility can help parents do is kind of gain some confidence in their parenting skill. And I think when we start to understand that when we give those kids that structure, we can really trust them to eat. A colleague of mine at the Ellen Satter Institute, Jennifer Harris says, hunger is a great motivator. We just have to let um, 
we just have to trust that we've done our job um, and that we've always put something at the table that a child can fill up on. Now, that doesn't mean it, um, again, Jenny Harris will say it has to be filling, not thrilling, um, but, but all families have some type of core food. Maybe it's tortillas, maybe it's rice, maybe it's bread. As long as there's something at that table that a child can fill up on, they can trust that they're going to get fed. And right. that allows that child to then become a little bit more adventurous with other foods. And when right. parents step back and take that pressure off, they take it not only off of the child, but they they take it off of themselves. Right. Um, and then slowly family meals get to be a place where people like to come to. And having the confidence, as you say, <laughs> that knowing that hunger is a powerful motivator and that a child who decides not to eat very much at breakfast, for example, eats very little at lunch and perhaps has those snacks in between, ultimately will become hungry. Mm -hmm. and, and, and a hungry child, a truly hungry child will generally always eat. Right, and we're not talking about being mean or restricting these kids from food. We're just kind of letting them find, find their way. And I, in my experience, that really doesn't last very long. Right. And so th there's this concept of so-called food neutrality, which ties mm -hmm. into this. Um, this this idea of, you know, there are good foods and there are bad foods and I want my child to eat only good foods and there are bad foods that they should never have. My understanding is that language we should really set aside for the most part and that food is food. Is that correct? That, that's correct. We really try to strip away those words like good, bad, healthy, unhealthy, because <clears throat> what we find, um, and I run this experiment with my, with my college kids, sometimes I'll just put the word healthy up on the board and I'll ask them to, you know, just tell me what that implies and, and all kinds of stuff comes up, moral judgment, virtue, um, just these feelings that are not even connected with food. And so when food just becomes food, it's just neutral, then it just, it kind of loses its power over us. Um, yes. And I find that that holds true with whether it's vegetables or sweets. Um, you know, if I can have a dessert whenever I want, there's no like, there's no like I have to earn it, then I don't have to earn it, sneak it, hide it. Um, uh, feel bad about it, run for a mile if I ate it. It's it's just food. That allows me then to actually eat it and taste it and decide that I can quit when I'm satisfied because I'm not worried that I'm never going to get it again. Right. So it really, really plays into developing that sense of hunger and satiety with so our it would. It so it would be okay, for example, to set your table and put your food on the table, include dessert and present all the food at the same time. And if your child decides to eat their strawberry sundae first, big deal. Food is food. Food is food. Yep. Yeah. We have very and few food rules at the Ellen Satter Institute. The only one does involve dessert um, and, and kind of if it's okay, I'll just, I'll just elaborate on sure. that. But we usually say, so at the table, um, everybody gets one serving of dessert if you choose to put dessert on the table at a given meal. And then um, the reason for that, and they can eat it whenever they want, at the beginning of the meal, in between the meal, at the end of the meal, but one dessert per person. And the reason is that 
sugar does kind of compete with other foods. Um, so kids will take the easy way out if we put a lot of those types of foods there. But if we give them that one dessert, then it says, yep, go ahead, have it, we're all good. To kind of counter that scarcity that we can set up with desserts at mealtime, we do recommend that periodically at snack time that maybe you serve an unlimited amount of something that's sweet or a chip. So maybe you have a plate of cookies and maybe a glass of milk at the table and they can fill up on those cookies at that occasion. Right. That takes away that that scarcity. Again, kids that have been kind of restricted, they might eat a lot of cookies at first, but after a while that that always seems to just settle down. Sure. And and related to that, how important is it to have regular family meal times together at my house? Uh, I have four teenagers and you know, they they weren't always teenagers. They they were preteens before they were teenagers. <laughs> And my wife and I both have medical practices. So we, we run a very busy household and, and, and my, our kids all have after school activities as most families have to a degree. And so it can be challenging to so-called uh, eat together, family meals together. What, what, what are sort of the foundational ground rules around that that you put forward to parents? Well, so I think there's a few things. First of all, I always tell people, let's define a family meal in the simplest terms that are most achievable for the family, which is just simply to sit together, face each other and eat the same food. So again, we take away this idea that it has to be all home cooked or it always has to be at the family table. Maybe it's in a restaurant, maybe, you know, but, but we sit together and the beauty, what really comes out of family meals and what we know from the research is children that have three to five family meals a week do better emotionally, nutritionally. Um, they have less incidence of drug use. They eat, have higher nutritional diets. They have less incidence of eating disorders. So the power of that family meal, I think extends, extends, I'm sorry, well beyond the walls of nutrition. The other thing that the family meal does for a child is it really sets up this idea of trust that I am going to get fed my family, my parents, I'm going to get fed. So now I can come to the meal and I only have to eat as much as I need at that meal to be satisfied. Cause there's going to be, there's reliability. There's going to be another, another meal. Um, on them, the, the meal is really kind of the classroom. It's where the magic happens. That's where kids learn to experiment with new foods. That's where they get to be adventurous. They get to try things. And they're not only just trying new foods, they're trying out social skills. They're learning to communicate. So, so much is happening at that family meal that I think they're, as, they're super important. But it's hard when two parents are are working when people have busy schedules. I remember those years when our children got into sports. And so I think you just, you kind of have to adapt along the way. And we mm. have to have help parents do the best that they can. That might mean that some nights the family meal is one parent with the children. Or maybe as kids get older and they're in sports, maybe the core family members that are there sit down and have a meal. But when that 16 year old comes in, there's at least food kind of prepared. And maybe somebody just sits with that child while they have 
their meal. Um, right. So we we adapt as as we move on. And I always say that's what happens with the division of responsibility, that what, when, and where, as, child, as children age, our goal is to slowly start to transfer those what, when, and where skills to that child so that when they leave the home, they can do the what, the when, and the where, the how much, and the weather all by themselves. Right. Yeah, sure. You know, and part of the reality is that um, because of constraints or simply because you want to have a family night out, sometimes that meal setting occurs in a restaurant. Sure. And, and, one of, and one of the things that has always struck me over the years when my kids were small and growing up and we would go, say, to Boston Pizza or a similar family restaurant, is that the kids would generally order from the kids' menu. And the kids' menu at most restaurants is populated by a few items that show up recurrently as the favorites. So the, the chicken fingers and the cheese pizza and those sorts of things. What, what are your views on the kids menu offerings that are on offer at most restaurants? Yeah, well, I like them as I've gotten older because they just have a, yeah. a nice portion size. You know, I think each parent kind of gets to decide that for themselves and and maybe they just, they let that menu option, it really is driven by what's going on in the family, like family, you know, family food budget, how much do you have to spend at the restaurant? What are those options that are available? Um, maybe kids split a meal if they go for that regular meal. Uh, so I think it, it can go either way. I know what you mean. There's a lot of times there's things there. It's the, I think it's the same in the United States. It's corn dogs, chicken nuggets or chicken tenders. Um, yeah. You know, maybe a smaller hamburger, uh, and, and and we we sometimes forget these kids have these palates that can tolerate um, and really enjoy some of the food that's on that that regular menu. So sometimes it's just about splitting those meals. Yeah, for sure. There was a best-selling book uh, some years ago. I'm sure you're familiar with it, called uh, "French Kids Eat Everything," um, which sold uh, many many copies because uh, the title was clever and parents struggling with their children eating picked it up to read it what were sort of the core principles in that book with regard to how, how is the French culture different and why do French kids eat everything if in fact that's true well I had not um, I had not heard that book until you you had put it in your notes so I did a little bit of research and um, I I think there's a lot of things in that book that are really good there's there's maybe a little pressure around eating but but I think what they've really set up there is in that French culture, eating is important and it's a skill and kids are expected to, to be able to try foods, um, to be well behaved at the table. Um, and I just think that sometimes when we do travel to European countries, I know we were just there recently, um, in Scotland, uh, people just really embrace food differently. It's important, it takes time. They set aside time to really sit down and eat a meal, enjoy a meal. Uh, so I think there was a lot of principles in that book that are helpful and they are around structure, um, making opportunity to eat and try new foods, being positive. Uh, so a lot of the outcomes that Ellen Satter herself recommends for eating competence. You have that contextual skill, 
you have that trust in hunger and fullness, you have food exploration, and you have positive attitudes around food. At what age would you recommend in general that the children themselves are involved in planning, creating, preparing the meal with the family in the kitchen? Yeah, I think as long as parents always remember it's their job, like they can't give away that leadership, that they're just going to move along as those kids get older. Um, I don't, you know, I kind of try to think back to our kids and, you know, we started probably when, when they could sit at a chair in the kitchen and maybe they were just involved in um, maybe carrying dishes to the table, you know, maybe that's what they start with, or they help kind of clean their plate. Um, I recommend kids uh, that you pass dishes around and kids actually serve themselves from a young age. Um, you know, knife skills and stuff as they get a little bit older, taking them along to the grocery store, maybe asking them what would they like to put on the list. Um, so I just, we just kind of, you know, probably five or six and just, work their way up kids cookbooks things that are kind of fun for kids but that was one of the things i thought was really interesting in the book that you referenced um they talked about food being food and it wasn't a we it wasn't about playing with your food it was about so so helping kids learn how to cook helping yes. kids you know maybe put things together like maybe the parent says well we're going to have this tonight, like chicken, and and maybe they ask their child, what would you, should we have carrots or broccoli? You know, you just give them one or two choices. Right. That's kind of the trick also. Children will tell you one thing and 10 minutes later, they'll change their mind. So I think that's what can get frustrating for parents when they get into this short order cooking. They just not realizing that developmentally, that child is, that's just not where they're at. Now the teenager might tell you something and they're gonna remember, but that young yeah. child, uh, so getting too abstract with those young kids is, uh, it's just probably a recipe for frustrated parents. Right. There is a local dietitian here who has a thriving practice for good reason because she is quite good. Her name is Sarah Remmer and she has a framework uh, that I quite like just four points you know number one be considerate without catering and then number two as you've alluded to family style meals family style meals when you can mm -hmm. and then lots of color aim for some visual appeal and impact and finally and probably most importantly don't get caught up in perfectionism right. and uh, you know i think this is where parents really do fall off the cliff in the sense that if they have some meals that don't in their minds go well where their children aren't eating or they're making choices that perhaps they themselves don't see as healthy, then they panic. Mm -hmm. And then they and then they start doing, as you say, the short order cooking or the the, the wheedling and the cajoling and the convincing and all of these sorts of things. Well and I think when 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 I see parents that have kind of their own struggles with their personal relationship with food, um then that can sometimes make feeding children challenging. One of the things we really love about the division of responsibility is because it helps set parents up for that success, similar to the, um, I think you said, you said Sarah. Um, so giving those tips, one of the things that we've learned is that 
parents can actually come along with their own eating competence when they feed their children. So yeah. parents will do things on behalf of their children um, that can make that whole meal much more enjoyable for everybody. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah. One of the questions that comes to me um, from parents who are concerned about the totality of nutrition for their children is uh, recommendations for vitamin supplements. And so you can go to your local grocery store, <clears throat> excuse me, you can go to your local grocery store and pick up big jars full of kid-friendly, chewable flavored vitamin supplements. And parents, um, again, understandably glom onto those sorts of solutions as additive to overall holistic eating. What are your, are, are vitamin supplements necessary in general? I think for the most part, if kids are eating a variety of foods, we probably don't need them. Um, right. You know, if a parent, if that's going to make that parent just feel like, oh, like I feel better and you aren't going like above a hundred percent of the daily, you know, the recommended value, for the most part, it's probably not going to be harmful. Right. But I think what we have to always remember is a supplement is simply that it's a supplement. It's not a replacement. And I and so I so as long as we remember serving that serving those meals, trusting our kids can get those nutrients, setting our kids up for um, the ability to explore new foods and have variety. For the I don't think we probably need them. I, I see them more useful in athletes that maybe need iron because they're, you know, just their sport is demanding more iron or more of a certain nutrient. Um, but for the most part, I don't think they're, they're super important. Sure. For our very young uh, children or some of my young patients, one of the things we come across with some frequency is milk as a um, component of children's diet to the point where it overtakes other nutrients. And, and it's driven by the understanding that milk is a wonderful nutritional food and that more milk cannot be bad. And we have children who are the age of two, we call them milk-fed toddlers or milk-fed babies, who actually have crowded out so much of their other nutrition that they have become quite deficient in iron because as you know milk milk doesn't have much iron in it has a lot of it's quite calorie dense and if they fill up on milk they don't fill up on other food choices so i guess the question i have for you is 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 milk truly an essential part of a kid's diet and how much is an, too much and how much is enough i probably have a um... I'm probably a little biased on my belief that milk still needs to be there because what I'm seeing is in the college age population where we're starting to see um, osteopenia from kids that have eliminated all milk or calcium containing foods and swapped them out for energy drinks and and sugar sweetened coffees and soda. So that's probably where I'm coming from working backwards. But talking about what, what you're speaking to is, you know, it seems that in that example, parents are missing that transition to solid foods. And so they're, they're in that transition. And if we, what we know about feeding children is the struggles with feeding tend to start 
when we start that introduction to solid foods. And I think that's when parents either lose their confidence or they aren't quite sure how to navigate that. So as that child is doing that transition, I would go to some of the things we think about in setting up a meal. You know, there would be milk at the meal and there would be milk at snack time, but there would be water in between those events. It wouldn't be a situation where kids are just allowed to keep drinking milk all day long and then offering foods, making sure there's opportunity early on for that child to start being introduced to solid foods. Um, so I, I really do think it has to do with not letting those kids just fill up all day long on milk or juice or, or any other beverage. Sure. And then, uh, you know, when our children are getting a bit older and they're starting to go outside the home independently, they go on play days to go to birthday parties, sleepovers, that kind of thing. Or when there's uh, different occasions, you know, we're on the cusp of the Christmas season right now where yep. we are all going to be drowning in lots of food and lots of sweet choices and lots of opportunities to eat all kinds of things. How, what sort of strategies can we teach our children with regard to holding on to healthy habits when parents are not there to supervise? How can they hold, how can they hold on to intuitive eating practices as they get older? You know, I think kids will naturally do that if at home you've set up that, that, that relationship with food um, where, and we trust that if they go to those places and they have some extra sweets or they have some of that party food, that they're just going to be okay, that it's not going to be a day-to-day -day occurrence. What I've really learned with my kids is that because they're internally regulated eaters and they actually taste that food, their their true preference is probably for more of those fruits and vegetables and the foods that really actually taste good. So even if they're at these parties and these events, at some point in time, they're just kind of like, okay, we've had enough of that now. Um, and I've seen that after, you know, vacation where we've had to eat, you know, eat out every day and they're just ready to come back home. And, and so that's really been my experience. Parents can kind of step back and relax if they've done that job at home. The kids that I see that have the most trouble are kids that, for example, say there's no sugar allowed in the house and the child gets to that birthday party and then that's like their only exposure. So they really, food isn't neutral at that point and they don't know how to handle it. And so they just eat and eat and eat. Or parents will say to me, well, we go to the birthday party and my kid will never leave the table. I'm like, right. well, that's probably more indicative of what they're day-to-day -day relationship is like for sure so again ann blocker is the executive director of the ellen satter institute uh, you can go to the website ellensatterinstitute.org uh, that's e-l-l-y-n by the way so e-l-l-y-n-s-a-t-t-e-r institute.org we'll put the link to the website in the show notes uh, but it's an absolute wealth of resources not just for parents, but for health professionals as well and for organizations. And so thank you again, Anne. I know this is a crazy busy time. We are just, I think, as of today, four days removed from Christmas Day. So thank you so much for making this space uh, to talk to us today. And a uh, very Merry Christmas to you and to your family, to your three grown children and to your husband. 
Thank you. And a very Merry Christmas to your family as well. I, I hope you have a joyous um, holiday season and that eating is joyful and fun as well. Thank you so much. great conversation with Ann Blocker. Uh, bottom line uh, for me, I think for most of us as parents, is this idea of shared division of responsibility. That being our responsibility as parents to decide on the food that we offer, uh, that we offer to our kids. And then our kids' responsibility to decide whether to eat it and how much they eat. I hope that uh, the conversation has been useful with regard to helping parents understand how to de-escalate conflicts around food and uh, to understand that our kids will eat, that hunger is a powerful motivator, and that our job is to provide a wide variety of foods and then, uh, to a large extent, get out of the way. Our kids won't starve themselves to death, and in fact, they'll all grow up to be healthy and strong, and hopefully with a good and normal uh, relationship to food. So that's it for today. Uh, just a programming note, uh, these longer form episodes, uh, as we've done so far, they take uh, quite a bit of time on my part to schedule and to produce. Uh, so far, we're getting out about one episode per month. Our goal in the future is to increase that frequency. Um, but I have received some feedback uh, on that score, uh, certainly calling for or asking for more frequent content, but also some content perhaps that is shorter uh, so beginning in the new year, we're going to introduce a feature, a new feature called the Daily Dose, short snapper episodes that we record on Monday through Friday on a whole host of topics, perhaps five to 10 minute blurbs on topics that are relevant and useful to parents. Some of them will be synopses of topics that we've covered in longer form elsewhere, but also a host of other subject matter. Uh, so look for that. Uh, we'll continue to do the longer form pieces as we've done. As I mentioned, once or twice a month, I appreciate all the feedback. And uh, let me just say here, Merry Christmas to all and a Happy New Year. And thank you, as always, for listening. Thank you for listening to Cloudy with a Risk of Children. A summary of today's episode can be found at riskofkids.substack.com. We'd love some feedback. Send us your comments or ideas you'd like to see us explore on future shows. You can reach us at feedback at riskofkids.com. That's feedback at riskofkids.com. Please support our podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Your input helps us make the show even better, points us to topics that are relevant to you, and helps us reach new listeners. Again, thank you for listening, and we hope you tune in next time. Until then, remember, kids are like boomerangs. They're wonderful to hold but they're meant to fly. The views expressed on this show should not be taken or construed as personal medical advice. For individual medical opinions, please consult your own doctor. Cloudy with the Risk of Children is a Studio D podcast production.